Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So That Happened is sponsored by ZipRecruiter, where you can post your offers to over 100 job sites with just one click. Now's your chance to try it for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash happened and get the edge on your competition today. This podcast is also sponsored by Texture, the smartphone app that brings the best magazines on the newsstands right to your pocket. Now, Texture is offering listeners a free trial when you go to texture.com slash happened. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the passing of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia has created yet another opportunity for a gigantic political meltdown between President Barack Obama and his opponents in the Senate, as well as a new round of talking points for candidates on the campaign trail. We'll explain where battle lines have been drawn and what's likely to happen next. Meanwhile, our guest this week is Maryland State Senator and law professor Jamie Raskin, who's gotten into the crowded Democratic primary to replace Representative Chris Van Hollen in Maryland's 8th District. He'll make his case for why he belongs getting the nomination over some well-funded but less experienced opponents. Finally, we've been talking on this show about the dangers to the economy posed by too-big-to-fail banks, and we have some good news to report. Our overwhelmingly sound arguments have convinced former bailout czar and current president of the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari, to join us. This was pretty unexpected, but now we're going to gloat. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, Julia Craven, and Shaheen Nasirapour. We'll also get you squared away on the latest news from the presidential races, from Clinton and Sanders' battle for black voters to another gravity-defying debate performance from Donald Trump. But here's what happened first. Hey, hey, people out there. You've reached So That Happened, your love line to the stuff that has happened. Uh, my name is Jason Lincoln. So I'm the editor of Eat the Press. And uh, boy, we have a big, big show and a lot of confusing things happening in the world, not the least of which is our dumb election, the <laughs> uh, 2016 election, uh, which continues despite the fact that it's horrible. Uh, joining, <laughs> you know, it's like if you get a rash, you go to the doctor, get rid of the rash. But there's no cure for the 2016 election. It's just going to keep happening. And we're going to keep sitting here talking about it. And sitting here talking about it with me today is Zachary Carter. Hello, everyone. Bon vivant and ne'er-do-well. That's a great job title. I've got to talk to Ryan <laughs> about getting that changed. And <laughs> Samantha Lockman. Hello. Who we will remind you is Canadian and therefore can skip town when everything goes to shit. I have, I have a home I can go to. Wipe the dust Another off this home. nonsense. So uh, someone on Twitter put it like this. Maybe this is like America's last season and the writers are like, let's go fucking nuts, man. Let's throw everything in there. Because we, this Saturday, this past Saturday, there was another Republican debate. And almost like the man at this point is just trying to see how far he can push things before it all comes down around and collapses. Donald Trump... Uh, goes out on stage and essentially rips Jeb Bush and George W. Bush, a new one, edging almost but not quite up to bona fide 9-11 truther territory, saying that, you know, he failed to stop, the his brother failed to stop the 9-11 attacks. They lied about weapons of mass destruction. No one thought, no one thought you could go to South Carolina, military state, deeply Republican state, the state that sent Lindsey Graham to the Senate, the state that wel has welcomed the Bushes at open arms. D Trump goes to South Carolina and says all the things you're never supposed to be able to say in South Carolina, and he goes up in the polls. What the fuck is happening? It was actually pre pretty amazing, and I think a lot of Democrats had some cognitive dissonance agreeing <laughs> with him about all this stuff. I mean, he, an another point, I mean, he just said all these different things that 
you wouldn't expect a Republican to say uh, with that sort of platform. Like he said, Planned Parenthood does a lot of really great things other than abortion. Like when has a Republican said that in the last Never. number of years? Never. Yeah. So I mean, he sounded like with a couple of caveats, like he was against abortion. He sounded like Michael Moore up there. Yeah. He did not just sound like a Democrat. He sounded like someone who breathes fire and has nothing but contempt for the Bush Right, years. like he was out on the Crawford Ranch with the peace protests during this time. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, I mean, to be clear, I, you know, Democrats would get in really, really deep water for saying most of the things that he oh. said, particularly this, the thing about, about September 11th happening on his watch. But if you look at the polling data that comes out uh, after Trump says this, Americans are basically split on whether whether George W. Bush did, in fact, keep us safe. That question is is actually there is a, a very sharp divide. It's about 50 50 in, in the country. Um, I think a lot of that is a partisan divide just because he was a Republican president during some pretty difficult years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it when you've got a guy going out and saying, no, 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 that take that he kept a safe thing is wrong. Where are the Twin Towers? You know, that Republicans haven't had to defend themselves from that attack because it was just so obvious that a, a Democrat would get roasted for saying that over the last, you know, 15 years, essentially. I was stunned. And he's he's not just going to win in South Carolina. He is going to destroy everyone in South Carolina. And it was a brilliant move because Jeb Bush is trying to his one last, you know, chance to, like, potentially do better than people thinks he could do. And now instead he has to defend his family. You know, this entire week leading up to the primary. So it was brilliant for Trump to refocus the conversation. On yeah, that he's talking again. about what a nice yeah. person his mom is. Yeah. You're like, oh, geez. Oh, and, come then on, Trump, man. and then Trump's like, well, she should run. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> oh, just, just stop. Stop doing this to yourself, Jeb. You don't even want to do it. Everyone can tell. His campaign way back at the turn of the year really started trying to push the media around and, and get them, literally try to get them to write the fact that Jeb was on a comeback. Now, the media, when we do write about these things, uh, I, I feel like the political press often bakes comeback narratives into their the stuff they're writing. I mean, I think that one of the things that everyone was very, very hard on Hillary Clinton coming out of New Hampshire solely because they wanted to write that she's back in South Carolina or Nevada, wherever she's inevitably going to be back. Um, but the the media has offered a Republican candidate this kind of boost, but it's not been Bush. No. It's been Marco Rubio who finishes third to fifth and continues to get boosted along by happy headlines chronicling how great Marco Rubio is doing. Marco Rubio is doing terrible. To me, it seems that the South Carolina primary, which is for Republicans, is this Saturday. Yeah. Is is going to be pretty decisive because what happens if if Rubio comes third, let's say, and Trump comes? I mean, sorry, Bush comes fourth or fifth. Like, are they finally going to drop out well, after I, this I, primary? I like, what are they going to do? I got news for everybody. The South Carolina primary is winner take all. Right. So what's going to happen is Trump's going to get all the delegates, and everyone else is going to get bupkis. Yeah. So oh, I, good Yiddish word. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I do what I can. So I I I really I really don't know what what Rubio is going to say about his third place finish, which is probably the best he can do at this point. Yeah. Doesn't this say something about the whole uh, the whole narrative that establishment Republicans, this is essentially the Wall Street wing of the Republican Party, um, have been have been pushing for the last several months that, that there's there's a, a an anti-establishment lane and an establishment lane and whoever can survive to be in the anti the establishment lane by the end is going to have be able to face off whoever's in the anti-establishment lane. That that narrative seems like total fantasy to me. Yeah, it, it doesn't actually work with the delegate math. Like, yeah, you're actually going to see Donald Trump and Ted Cruz getting a ton of delegates, yeah. and they're going to be number one and number two, yeah. and they will be fighting at the convention over which one of those is the nominee. And because, number number three doesn't matter. Yeah, and which, number three will be you know two delegates ahead of number four. Yeah, people still talk about there being a contested convention. Yeah, they, they also talk about being a brokered convention, which is by my understanding, not the right term because the Republican Party does not actually have brokers. What they mean to say is that that no one will enter the convention with a majority of delegates, Mm. uh, though delegates are bound to a candidate on the first ballot, they can migrate to other candidates if they fail to elect one on the first ballot of the convention. And from there, it could be all wheeler dealing and someone could end up with the nomination that isn't the person who came into the convention with the delegate lead. I think that's probably stupid to talk about because I don't see any obstacle in the way of Donald Trump simply notching mm. the right number of delegates to clinch the nomination. Right. 95% of the delegates at the convention are bound. They're mm-hmm. not pledged. Bound means they have to vote for the person who won 
uh, on on the first ballot. So he wraps it up. I am, think, I, am I wrong about that? I think I've been saying for weeks. I think Trump is the inevitable Republican nominee. I think Cruz is the only guy who can beat Trump in a primary. I think there's very few primaries where he can do that. I don't think Bush or Rubio could win a primary, to be honest with you. But, you know, it's interesting, all the chaos on the Republican side. uh, Republicans are getting ready to go to South Carolina. If you're listening to this on Saturday, they're voting tonight. (laughs) Um, The same day, Democrats are in Nevada. There's... They're down to two candidates. They started with we started with four, and they got down to two. So Less the winning, winnowing. winnowing has happened. Yeah, um, that's right. Nevada is fascinating. I think most people uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, would have described that as part of Clinton's firewall post New Hampshire. That's mm-hmm. something that she was going to be able to take in a walk. There's not a whole lot of polling out there, but there is a, a relatively recent CNN poll which suggests that Clinton is up by one point, 48 to 47. It's a lot closer than they would want it to be right now. And so they've been preparing, they've been doing the expectations thing that they did in New Hampshire, Clinton's campaign, by saying it was Brian Fallon, who's her press secretary, who said, well, actually, you know, the Nevada caucus, it's 80% white, so Sanders will probably do well there too. And Nevada people hated that because it was seeming to undercut the idea that Nevada was put like on or so early in this primary calendar and caucus calendar because it has a significant Latino population there. So that was like really not good messaging for her campaign, but it looks really close. And it's a caucus where Sanders's organizing capabilities can excel. And he can also, he can do really well among white voters in Nevada and then just do okay among Latinos and then do pretty well in the caucus. So why do we have this on the democratic side? Do we have these arcane caucus? Like it's totally confusing where people will win the number of, win more votes, but actually not win as many delegates? I mean, since... Yeah. It, isn't it called the Democratic Party? The primaries <laughs> are no less arcane. They're just a little bit more simple to, to grasp. I mean, Hillary Clinton got blown out if you count the votes in New Hampshire. Over 22%. <clears throat> but she took home a bunch of delegates because... She of had the, the super delegates in yeah. New Hampshire locked up. Yeah, which is another... And stupid it, thing that Democrats should get rid of. It's dumb for Democrats because it undercuts voter like enthusiasm about the whole process. Like people don't want to participate in a process that seems rigged, and seems like your vote doesn't make a difference potentially. Well, so you you heard Debbie Wasserman Schultz defending this the other day, where she she said, "Yeah, well, you know, we 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 have the super delegates because you know we don't basically want things to be decided by grassroots activists." And I think she was trying to say we want to make sure that that grassroots activists get like this sort of separate lane of consideration that they're guaranteed at the convention. Like they weren't going to allow Democrats to show up at the democratic convention. Yeah. Uh, She is um, not good at her job. (laughs) I, I was, I was shocked. It was like, yeah, we actually want elected party insiders to run things. And we want grassroots people to have like a special, a special zone at our convention and then leave everything to us. It'll be very interesting if in the end, the real difference between getting nominated and not nominated are superdelegates because I think that's a recipe for sending a lot of people away from the primary process feeling alienated and disaffected, and then how do you get them back? That's going to piss, really piss people off. It's, yeah. It's, Especially given how ugly the fight already is between people. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess the Clinton campaign has stopped saying that, like, Bernie Sanders can't talk to Latinos because it looks like he's doing pretty well with Hispanic voters yeah. in Nevada. But but there is a, there's a whole lot of you're racist for not supporting my candidate. No, you're the real racist because your candidate's more you know way worse. Or her record's way worse than mine. The the infighting within the Democrats to me seems much more dangerous for turnout in the general than, yeah. than the infighting you're seeing among Republicans. You don't want them to just stay home. If we go all the way to a convention and this this ends with super delegates, that's months and months and months of people being at each other's throat and before before they remember that. Oh yeah, most of us identify as Democrats for a reason. Yeah, people. You know, I'll say this: people talk hot often off the cuff during a primary season right? when they're not going to get what they want and they'll say they're not going to vote in a, ge- in, in a general election. Typically what happens is the stakes become more apparent and they come back and vote. But the big difference is is that you do not have the potential enthusiasm actually supporting the campaign infrastructure in the states when you leave people disaffected. Mm-hmm. You're limiting your ability to actually like get those people who are excited about going door-to-door and meeting voters, who are excited about phone banking, working in precinct offices, that kind of stuff. And that can really tip an election. If you have enthusiastic, always on the go, always at the office, always working campaign, 
you can overcome a lot of odds that don't necessarily show up in the gaff cycle in the media. There's that undercurrent that's always happening. It's one of the reasons Obama thwacked McCain as bad as he did was because McCain didn't have enthusiasm yeah. at his campaign offices. Uh, even Clinton. I mean, uh, remember the Virginia offices uh, during the 2008 primary and, and the general. I mean, Obama had an uh, unbelievable ground game in Virginia with people who were just absolutely thrilled to be to be working for him. And people had, who were working for Clinton were a lot of people who were like, you know, cool. All right. 90s were good. Let's do that again. Yeah. You know? So you may have people come back and vote in the general, but are they going to be the type of person that get 10 more people to vote with them? Right. That's the question. Yeah. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's like a I shit said, show. Like I said, yeah, good. There you go. <laughs> Correct. In summary. <laughs> it's a shit show. Angela Merkel's favorite word. All right. Thank you for being with us, Samantha. Thank you for being with us, Zach Carter. That truly is one of Angela Merkel's favorite words. Look it up. Uh, we will be right back. Hey, everybody. If you're a business owner, you know that you're only as good as the people you hire. But it can be so time-consuming to find those gems, the kind of employees that will give you the edge. You're never going to succeed posting your job offer in just one place, but you and your staff can't lose valuable time posting to dozens of job sites. Fortunately, ZipRecruiter is here to help you cut through your burden, get your message out to job seekers, and ensure that you find the perfect hire. With just one click, you'll post your offer to hundreds of job sites. You'll be instantly matched to top candidates, and you'll watch brand new candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface in just 24 hours. Pretty soon, your hiring needs will be done and dusted. It's no wonder that over 400,000 companies use ZipRecruiter. Tara Novotny has this to say about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter has completely changed the way we evaluate and manage candidates. As a small business, we subscribe to the always-be-hiring approach to growth, and the tools available to us through our membership have made that simpler, easier, and faster. It's folks like Tara that have learned what a great service ZipRecruiter is, and you can try it right now for free. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before someone else snags them. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash happened. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash happened. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash happened. Join now and get the edge on your competition today. Hey, everybody. We are back. Joining me now are my pals, Arthur Delaney. Hey. And we're also joined by Julia Craven. Hello. 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 We are going to talk some about what's become maybe the bitterest battle on the uh, Democratic side of the nomination fight. Uh, coming out of New Hampshire, we saw that uh, Bernie Sanders had done a lot of work poaching women from Hillary Clinton, uh, especially young women. And it made you wonder how well is Clinton going to keep the Obama coalition together? Well, upcoming states maybe have a clearer picture. <clears throat> Sorry, upcoming states maybe have a clearer picture because as we know, Iowa and New Hampshire, these are very Caucasian places in America, whereas Nevada and especially South Carolina are very not, especially among Democratic voters. And so the conversation on their side has shifted to really flamboyant efforts to win the black vote now. You know, that reminds me, that's why uh, the election in Iowa is called a caucus. Because it's so <laughs> a little so, bit of trivia for our listeners. Thanks. That that uh, you nice. know what? I don't know if nice. that's I, I don't know if that's true, but we will just say it's one of those things that if it's not true, it should be true. Um, and it's been a brutal battle with competing op-eds and and uh, influential African Americans coming out hither and yon. I don't know what's to, what to make of it, but it does seem like Hillary Clinton, at least in South Carolina, is. Going in with a huge advantage. I, the key thing is that she starts with 80% support among African-American voters. Which is, so it's massive advantage. Be, and partly because people don't even know who Bernie Sanders is. Right. He's from Vermont. <laughs> and Hillary Clinton was in the White House for eight years. So why is it that Hillary Clinton has maintained the fealty of African-American voters in this race? Well, black people down south are very conservative. Um, maybe not economically, but at least socially, they're pretty conservative. 
black voters down south tend to be older and more religious as well. So they have an attachment to establishment politics, and Hillary Clinton is that. They're a voting bloc that actually sees being part of the establishment as a plus. The establishment is safe. They it's, it's a question yeah, it's of safe. strategic voting, also of <laughs> of actually winning a general election. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I and understand that. And then there's that. a generation gap between black voters. It's like millennial black voters are leaning more towards Sanders, whereas older black voters are more towards Clinton. So we're going into this uh, this race in, in Nevada, and it's been pretty interesting because when way back before the primary started. The Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, knowing that the, the calendar was somewhat front-loaded with uh, states that could fall to Sanders relatively easily, New Hampshire obviously borders on Vermont, Iowa and Iowa liberals in Iowa are very liberal. Forty-three percent of Iowa Democrats uh, identify themselves as socialists. So it was easy. They saw those two two states as places where they probably would not do well. But they saw Nevada, more diverse uh, voter population, as a place where they could win up until the polls started tightening. And now they're starting to characterize Nevada as not as diverse. Is this expectations game nonsense? The race is tighter than they expected. This is on Saturday, right. by the way. So yes. the, and, the and Clinton campaign is lowering expectations now for what will happen there. Yeah, and you know what? No one should have too much of an expectation of what's going to happen there because it's a notoriously difficult state to poll. And so there have been very few polls conducted. Right. Uh, it's a state where a lot of the Democratic base are people who work nights. They work in union jobs. They work in casino jobs. They don't have landline phones, so they're really difficult to reach. So we are kind of going in blind. But it does seem like she's setting a certain amount of expectations, and it's weird how it's taken this racial tinge. Well, if you think about how no Democratic president um, since the parties flipped their ideology um, post-Reconstruction, there isn't one that has been elected without the black vote. So, of course, she's just like, hi, like, let's end systemic racism, like, let's do something about this, especially in South Carolina. And then black people have such a fond memory of Bill Clinton's presidency because he's painted as the first black president and he was on Arsenio Hall playing the saxophone and it's just like, oh, he's cool, he's great. And she's associated with that. The tenor of the campaign has changed coming out of, of New Hampshire uh, because Hillary Clinton now has a sort of national mission that everyone can get on. Right. And I think it's specifically geared toward minority voters, this breaking barriers that she's been talking about. I think that it's probably evidence that competition improves your game somewhat. I think it's maybe also evidence that when you're when you get down and out, start pandering. Um, <laughs> Most definitely. But uh, but you know, I think that I think that she's making she's made a kind of naked pitch, and whether or not it's if it's quaint or not, I think it's it's in some quarters working, but not in all quarters. You know, we've talked about. Uh, this week, uh, Killer Mike on the campaign trail mm-hmm. um, got himself into a little bit of arrears uh, <laughs> when the media caught him up in the gaff cycle. Uh, but he's been a significant uh, African-American uh, voice for Bernie Sanders. He has been a significant voice, but from what I've seen, especially on Twitter and stuff, people are a little skeptical of that. Yeah, he got in trouble because he quoted somebody saying a uterus is not an automatic qualification. Right. I would have been interested to have seen more of the context surrounding that comment um, from the person that said it to him. I would have liked to see more. I want to see the full conversation there. It seemed like it might be one of those examples where, yes, in fact, context was missing in some yeah, of the outrage. It, it seemed out Usually of when people said that was out of context, they're just, you know, they're just lying. We're also <laughs> we, just a week past uh, what I would say one of the more brutal moments of the campaign as far as uh, Bernie Sanders is concerned. It, w- it occurred at the uh, at meeting, uh, the, the press conference that the Congressional Black Caucus uh, put up to announce their endorsement of, of Hillary Clinton. And uh, John Lewis, ether, yeah, completely ethered Bernie <laughs> Sanders, saying that like completely just said he has no credibility in civil rights. Right. Uh, Was it, he said I didn't even I didn't see him. Yep, never. He met wasn't him. there. Never didn't, met him. Yeah, met all kinds him. of people. It was uh, an extended yeah, put down. It was. It's, it was. 
Was it a cheap shot? I don't know. It was a it was a hard shot though. Yeah, it was it was pretty brutal. It was <laughs> it not, was a neck shot. Yeah, it kind of was. <laughs> you know, we we sort of we sort of associate uh, John Lewis with this being this kind of like genteel older statesman now and a guy right. who's widely admired. Uh, it's been a while since we've seen him throw an elbow like that. So when it came, it was yeah, it was it was really shocking to me when I saw that. Cause I'm just like, yo, John Lewis like got in front of the country and just like. He let the chopper sing on Bernie Sanders, <laughs> and I'm just like, "Whoa, what the fuck is this?" Uh, it was, it was pretty brutal. It was pretty brutal. We're looking ahead at a bunch of Southern states on Super Tuesday, and going into it, uh, Hillary Clinton enjoys gigantic leads in most of these states. Uh, is this down to the African American vote? Why it's happening? Oh, I would say in the South, most definitely. Definitely, especially down south. Yes, you're obviously from this from this part of the country, and you're African American. Growing up, what did you what did you come to know about this side of Democratic politics? What did you come to know about Clintons? Yeah, so it's like growing up, my granny was always just like, you know, oh, Bill Clinton was great. It's like we had jobs under him. Like the economy was awesome. Um, one of the things that she would say to me is that, like, you know, the Democrats are the only people looking out for us. Um, and by us, she meant black people. She's just like, the Republicans aren't here for us. Like, they don't want to help us. They're racist. They're this, they're that. And, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, they're, that's definitely rooted in some some history. Um, Could we be witnessing really what is one of the, the oldest kind of, like, phenomena in, 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 in life, where a younger generation just starts to interrogate the stories of their elders? Uh, and 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 rejects them, rebels against them because you're right. Your your grandmother probably had a lot of reason to to have affection for the Clintons in the '90s because the economy did improve. But she also yeah. didn't get locked up. Yeah, exactly. She didn't end up on welfare. She didn't. Maybe maybe she didn't know any. Well, maybe she didn't know anybody who was caught in that situation. And of course, one of the interesting things about welfare reform. Uh, that was passed during that period of time is that the the bitter brutalness of it didn't really uh, become visible until the financial crisis crisis happened. Right, and suddenly a safety net that used to be there for a lot of people in the boom before before the boom times made it to the Clintons' mind irrelevant. Yeah, uh, wasn't there anymore. We're a generation that like most of our lives were spent under Bush. Yeah, that's true, too. At least, like, our formative years. And then it's like, you know, once we hit college and high school and everything, now we have Barack Obama. Growing up under Bush and then existing in post-9-11 America, post-crash America, post-soon-to-be-post-Barack Obama America, it's just kind of like we have to ask these questions because maybe the things that the establishment has done, those things don't always work. And now we're now now the establishment is being put to the test with a guy like Sanders in the race, who, and Trump. Yeah, yeah, that's another problem. <laughs> uh, of course, of course, what's with the, the 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 thing about Trump that I'm sure sure you guys have had plenty of time to reflect on this is that when Bernie Sanders blames uh, plutocrats for the problems that face us, it's Trump who's blaming black and brown and yellow people for the problems that face us. But he said he'd be great for the blacks. You, you don't believe him? He also said that we're all criminals and we hate cops. Right. So yeah, he said that what? a lot. Let's just call that one a mixed message. Oh. All right. <laughs> all right. Uh, oh, well, Donald. Yeah, yeah it's gonna, it always comes back around to him, doesn't it? All right. Well, Arthur, Julia, thanks for joining us today, and we shall be right back. Hey, guys. You know, thanks to pizza, we're all binge eating. Thanks to Netflix, we're all binge-watching. And thanks to whiskey, we're all binging on very moderately socially acceptable levels of drinking whiskey. Come on now. But with texture, you can start binge-reading. Trust me, this is about to be a thing. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like. And with texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place, your smartphone. Texture is completely reimagined magazines, giving you the articles and stories you really want all in one place plus interactive features, videos, and recommendations tailored just for you. 
Texture offers unlimited access to all of your favorite magazines for less than the price of three magazines at the grocery store. You can browse hundreds of magazines at your leisure and cherry pick the articles that interest you the most. What's more is that Texture offers a lot of cool features that let you go deeper. I don't just read Entertainment Weekly or Bloomberg Business Week. The Texture editorial team provides a full supply of recommended stories every day. Plus, their carefully curated collections let me dive down deeper into topics. And hey, it's environmentally friendly, shareable with your family, and will help prevent that pile of back issues on your nightstand grow to unimaginable heights. The best part, Texture is offering listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the ones on newsstands today. So stop wasting time, paper, and money. Take advantage of this offer right now and try Texture for free when you go to texture.com slash happened. And we're back. Uh, we are joined once again by Zach Carter. Woohoo! And joining us now is Arthur Delaney. Hi. The much in demand Arthur Delaney. Uh, and we are going to talk about, uh, well, this weekend, while Zach and I were watching what was eventually going to be a sad loss to Duke University for, mm. the, for, for the beloved UVA Cavaliers, uh, the news came in that uh, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. Had had passed away, uh, and that now it's time to name a successor, and that means the 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 ever increasing blood dim tide has grown increasingly bloody with the news uh, that there's going to be a Supreme Court fight as a, the front and center of the 2016 race. You couldn't overstate what a shock it was and what a huge development it is. Yeah, I think people are still coming to terms with it. Obviously, conspiracy theories are flying about, was he murdered? Donald Trump's doing that. Yeah, of course Donald Trump is such an unbelievable jerk. (laughs) It is so uh, unworthy of the Republican frontrunner position that he's in. Yeah, but he keeps getting more and more people to vote for him, so whatever works. Uh, What comes next now is some uh, matter of interplay between Uh, President Obama, who has the constitutional response. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Possibility to pick a successor to uh, Scalia's uh, empty chair and the Senate who have advised and consent privilege over the nomination process. And to me, it's interesting because it's almost like a sort of Democratic campaign in miniature. Uh, What's going to move the ball over the line? Is it going to be the Hillary Clinton style of politicking and operating and compromising and cajoling? Or is it going to be public pressure mounted on the Republicans to give in? We have a piece up today talking about how uh, one of the weapons, maybe the only weapon Obama has in his arsenal, Leverage-wise, is public shame. So it's not going to work. Nothing's going to work. That's so we're my gonna, prediction. Don't you Peace up today. Don't you think we're going to see an interesting? Uh, we're going to see maybe maybe more Bernie than Hillary, but a theory of governing put to the test in microcosm in this fight. Well, the the this fight started off in the most stupid way possible, with Republicans saying, "Do not even nominate a person." <laughs> Which was, I didn't understand that one bit, because it's his job to nominate someone, there's a whole year left, and you can say no. That's your job. Just say no. 
let him nominate somebody. And now they're already sort of uh, backtracking. Yeah. They immediately put themselves at a disadvantage, which I think will lead President Obama to, to pursuing this in along a more practical way, because it, it looks like there is a possibility he could actually get someone through or to a confirmation process. Well, let me interrogate the idea that President Obama is going to be purely practical here, uh, because there's another argument to be made that says President Obama could use this appointment privilege, knowing that he's probably not going to get Senate to pass anybody. He could use this uh, nominating privilege as a means to extract political pain, uh, well, not extract, but but to but to put political pain on Republicans during this during this election year. President Obama could nominate Loretta Lynch, who the Senate recently confirmed. He could nominate himself. That's my favorite. I love, I love that idea. And then Joe Biden would finish the presidency like Rudy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and Republicans are then in a position where, look, if, if Obama is such a bad guy, if he's, such, if he's the worst president of our lifetimes, isn't the chance to get him out of the presidency... Worth is, yeah, and these vulnerable <laughs> Senate Republicans refuse to vote Obama out of office. <laughs> it's a, it's like brilliant. It wins the multi-dimensional chess battle. It obliterates all your opponents. Is that Obama nominates himself? Is that is that the most fucked up thing Obama could do with the nomination? It's like the Lorax himself? lifting himself by the seat of his pants. What if he nominated Bernie Sanders? That would just be that would just be weird, man. And it's not yeah, weird dude, to nominate himself. Bernie's Bert, <laughs> not Cheney a move. Bernie Sanders is not a lawyer. <laughs> you but don't. It would get rid of the primary challenge. Barack Obama has made quite clear he prefers Hillary Clinton as his successor. He could here, nominate so. Donald Trump to the Supreme Court, save everybody a pain and hassle. <laughs> that would, Donald Trump would hate that job so. He's gonna hate much. being president. He doesn't. Yeah. You know what? I used to think he didn't want it at all, but he is. Continuing to go through this primary, grueling fashion. <laughs> I, I think he's really enjoying running for president. I think, I think actually being president he would find terrible. Because yeah, but it would right be better mind? than being Supreme Court justice in those robes. <laughs> yeah, he'd have the best robe. You don't look good. He wouldn't look good in the robes, and he knows that. Holding his Diet Coke. You know what he'd hate most about being on the Supreme Court? The fact that you're never on television. There would be the C-SPAN would finally get in there if Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine the freaking opening like oral arguments with Donald Trump on the bench? Yo, Solicitor General, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say this, but I'm gonna say this. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's uh, thanks for helping me fantasize about that nonsense. Uh, what do you any what do you think is gonna happen the next time Democrats get together to talk about this? I, I think Democrats are going to are going to say gleefully that they're putting the Republicans in a bad spot and uh, just kind of shrug off the fact that no one's going to get confirmed. Um, I could be wrong, though. You guys seem to be much more op optimistic about this process moving. Well, I don't I don't think Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are going to have a big disagreement about it. All right. Well, there you have it. They're going to have eight people in the Supreme Court for a while, which is OK, I guess. Yeah. Eight. It's happened before, yeah. um, but we haven't had a, if, if if no one is nominated on this it, during Obama's term, it will be the longest vacancy on the court since like in like 170 years. So <laughs> governing, <laughs> make America whatever was happening 170 years ago again. All right, cool. Well, we'll be right back. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. And to thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show, and we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. So as regular listeners of So That Happened know, we like to introduce... 
our listeners to candidates, typically Democratic candidates, who are doing new and unusual things uh, in the Democratic Party. And so this week, we are joined by Jamie Raskin, who is a professor of constitutional law at American University and also a state senator from Maryland. Uh, state Senator Jamie Raskin, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's totally my pleasure to be with you guys. So uh, you're running f to replace uh, Chris Van Hollen, who is a very well-known Democrat in, in the House from, who is running for Senate. Um, your race is kind of a little bit more of, um, I guess the word would be a shit show, um, than even the Maryland Senate race. Uh, there, I think there are officially like eight candidates in. You've got uh, nine. Okay. Uh, multiple state senators, your own colleagues. Um, uh, no state senators other than me. There's some delegates, some representatives. Representatives. That's, that's right. But members of the state legislature. Um, we've got uh, a former – Kathleen Matthews is a former – she doesn't like the word lobbyist because she wasn't a registered lobbyist when she was at Marriott. Oh, but she was a lobbyist. Come on now. She was sort of a historian for Marriott, sure. you might say. Um, <laughs> like New Gingrich. And David Trone, who is a very wealthy man who owns uh, Total Wine which is a, a, a big sort of local chain around the D.C. area. Um, what made you want to run for this seat in such a, such a crowded race? Well, first of all, it wasn't that crowded when I got into it. Um, I, I actually have the support of my fellow state senators, um, the progressive senators from Montgomery County and Frederick, uh, Rich Maddalino and Susan Lee and Kieran Montgomery introduced me right uh, uh, endorsed me right at the beginning, uh, Senator Ron Young from Frederick. Um, and I actually have the endorsement of more than uh, 65 elected officials. I've been endorsed by the Congressional Progressive Caucus. I've been endorsed by the Attorney General of Maryland, Brian Frosch, who's the number one Democrat in our state, our having lost the governorship, alas, in 2014. Um, and I've been endorsed by the Sierra Club and the Teachers Union. So um, it, it's not quite as choppy as it sounds. I think that the progressive and liberal forces are coalescing around my candidacy, which I think is our best bet uh, for defeating the big money candidates who have uh, dropped into the race. Well, that's sort of one of the more interesting aspects, I think, of this, this race in particular, because, look, I mean, Kathleen Matthews and David Trone are very well-financed candidates. They're very wealthy. It's typically a, a dynamic that you see um, in a general election. I mean, I think that the, your, this, the seat that you're running for is a, is, is a very likely Democratic seat. Um, and so instead of having super wealthy Republicans running, uh, we, have, we have super wealthy Democrats sort of filling that, that slot in the race. Uh, how are you raising money um, in order to compete with that kind of, uh, you know, that, that kind of funding? Well, we're raising it the old-fashioned way. It's a real grassroots campaign. Um, we are about to have our 100th event in somebody's living room or backyard, and I actually have received more individual campaign contributions than any congressional candidate in America who's not an incumbent, and more than the vast majority of incumbents. So we have gone over 7,500 individual uh, donations from people. Um, so that's exciting. And so we're right behind... Um, the Matthews campaign, who I believe she's still the leading corporate PAC recipient in the country for anybody who's not an incumbent. She certainly was in the last quarter. And then Trone uh, is a self-financed candidate who has said he will spend whatever it takes in order to get elected. Um, you know, the problem with this is that, you know, in the Citizens United era, big money has become a substitute for everything else, uh, a record of political activism and engagement, uh, legislative uh, advocacy and success, uh, a record of even voting. Um, you know, two of my opponents haven't even voted in two of the last three Democratic primary elections. Party service, all of these things have been rendered, or they're trying to render them completely irrelevant um, in the face of big money. So big money becomes a proxy and a substitute for everything else. Um, my hope is that uh, they can't get away with this in a uh, district like the 8th Congressional District, which has elected um, fine uh, public officials who have real records of legislative service and distinction. And I'm running as an effective legislative advocate and leader. Um, I led the floor fight for marriage equality in our state. I led the floor fight to abolish the death penalty in our state. I led the floor fight for the Second Chance Act, for... Um, uh, restoring voting rights for ex-felons. I championed that. Uh, we, I introduced the bill for medical marijuana, uh, lots of environmental legislation like the Green Maryland Act. In other words, I'm presenting a real record of demonstrated legislative accomplishment and <clears throat> progressive action.
one, one thing that's pretty interesting is we talked, we've talked to uh, Tim Canova, who's running against Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, we've talked to Zephyr Teachout, who's running in uh, the Hudson Valley District up in New York. And, and you, you all share a lot of things in common. You're all sort of uh, lefty law professor types, constitutional lawyers. Uh, and, there's, and with the two of them, uh, there's also a really sort of deep dissatisfaction with the status quo in, in Washington. So I was wondering, uh, this is great because now there's a third law professor running, which means we have a trend piece. That's one of the rules of journalism. <laughs> if there's three, three people doing a thing, it's a trend. So congratulations to, to both you and especially to us. But um, is, are you driven by anything uh, status quo related? In, in, what, what made you want to get into the race? Well, look, I mean, as I was saying, I've been part of some tremendous and historic changes in our state. I think the last decade has been perhaps the most legislatively productive and prolific period in uh, Maryland's history in terms of abolishing the death penalty, sweeping criminal justice reform, reforming mandatory minimums, restoring voting rights for the ex-felons, lots of huge environmental legislation reducing greenhouse gas emissions and so on. Uh, I introduced also the the bill to ban military-style assault weapons and to take on the NRA in a bunch of different ways. But here's the thing. I mean, we can have the best state laws in America, and I think we do, on a number of fronts. Um, but take gun safety, for example. You know, we passed, I think, the toughest gun safety law in the country after um, the catastrophe that took place uh, in Connecticut. Um, but... We just had the bloodiest summer on record in Baltimore because the guns continue to flow in from out of state, from Virginia and North Carolina and Jersey and Pennsylvania. And we can have you know, some of the best environmental laws in the country right here, but we have 50 waterways flowing into Maryland from Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York and so on. And um, climate change uh, is it's not even an issue. It's the whole context within which we've got to decide everything. And we're not going to be able to solve that simply one state at a time. You know, and, and I have said, I think I'm the only candidate in the country who said this now, um, I'm, not, I'm not accepting any money from big gas or big coal or big oil. I refuse it, and I, you know, they don't want to give me any anyway to be <laughs> clear about that. So I don't know how much of a sacrifice it really is. But, so you know, I, I, have not, I have not accepted any money from corporations or partnerships in Maryland since I was elected a decade ago, and it's given me the independence to try to stand up for the common good against moneyed special interests. So you, you have a good record of getting things done. One of the more interesting things that's happening at the presidential level uh, of, of, the, of the primary season is we're having this debate over, I think, methods. Um, the, the Hillary Clinton has, has said, well, I work within a system. I'm, I'm an ace at, I'm an ace operator. I make compromises and I get things done. Bernie Sanders says I'll mount public pressure to uh, overcome obstacles that are thrown in my way. To your mind, what does what gets it done? What's what moves legislation, important legislation, game changing legislation over the goal line? Well, obviously, it's both. Um, you know, in the case of the death penalty, we mobilized a huge coalition of religious groups, civil rights groups, civil liberties groups, criminal justice reform groups, uh, people all over the state. And we had to fight a very complicated internal strategy within the General Assembly uh, on the floor of the Senate and the House to make it happen. And so, um, you know, the, the, my philosophy is that the campaign that you begin when you go and ask your neighbors and uh, constituents to vote for you continues when you're in office. And for me, politics is all about education. You educate people about what the problems are, what the issues are, and what the solutions are, and how you get it done through the process. And I feel like, you know, I've been able to take some of the most seemingly intractable and impossible issues in our history. You know, the death penalty goes back four centuries. We've had marriage exclusion and discrimination for centuries. We've gotten these things done. We've turned it around. And I think we need to bring the same kind of spirit of pragmatic, progressive populism directly to Congress. Now, when you say populism, um, both uh, Tim Canova and, uh, and Zephyr Teachout have uh, very detailed views about, uh, about financial reform. Um, I first found out about you um, through your, by reputation, because you were married to a Treasury official. Um, I am married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who is former Federal Reserve governor, uh, who is... I mean, unless you're making news here today, yes. Yeah. She's still my wife. <laughs> yes, so, uh, so hopefully we're not breaking any news for you. Um, you know, she's widely regarded as one of the toughest financial reform people in, in, uh, in the world, really. Um, so do you, 
do you have any any thoughts on uh, on Wall Street that you'd like to uh, to share with our listeners? Well, yeah. Look, I mean, um, first of all, the, the 2008 mortgage meltdown crisis was uh, a debacle for millions of American people who lost their jobs, got thrown out of their homes, and saw literally trillions of dollars in retirement equity, stock equity, and savings disappear and vanish. And, of course, the right wing has turned around and blamed um, uh, very powerful forces like teachers and firefighters and cops for the problem so that they've used the whole occasion of uh, the economic calamity of 2008 to attack people and unions. Uh, and that's predictable and it's depressing. Um, well, we began a process of financial reform, which we must complete. There are important components of it that have not been uh, implemented yet. One of them, for example, is removing uh, dangerous and perverse incentives um, for executive uh, compensation on Wall Street. We've got to deal with the whole compensation question so that the incentives are aligned with uh, good public policy outcomes rather than bad public policy outcomes. So that's one of the things that we need to do. Um, and, uh, you know, in general, we have to resist uh, attempts to, uh, to undermine uh, the Dodd-Frank legislation and to uh, abolish the CFPB, uh, which the right wing is heavily engaged in. But look, you know, I, I believe that um, that it is a, uh, a really sacred democratic responsibility to promote an economy that works for everybody um, and not simply for the richest people in the country and not simply for the people who bankroll campaigns. Well, and, uh, you know, and one of the big problems with the dramatic inequality that's grown up in America is that we have a smaller and smaller group of people who are bankrolling campaigns and exercising disproportionate political power. And I believe you've written a book on campaign finance reform in the past, but I think we have to leave it at that for now. Um, Jamie Raskin, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'd be happy to come back sometime. And we'll be back. We're back. So from time to time on this podcast, we talk about our deep worries that America and really the world's financial institutions are all ready to go ass over tea kettle and swamp us in a cascade of galactic financial fuck ups again. Unexpectedly, this week, we grew a new ally. His name, Neil Kashkari. And he was last seen running for governor. In California. Prior to that, he was building a shack in the middle of the woods, all sad. And prior to that, he was working here during the last, here in Washington, during the last big crisis bailout. So what's happened that brought Neil Kashkari onto our side? Joining us now is Zach Carter. Hello. And by phone, our friend and colleague on the What's Not Working desk, Shaheen Nasirapur. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. So... Shaheen, did when you woke up and discovered that Neil Kashkari had had joined Team Fuck, everything's too big to fail. Still, what did, what was the first thought that crossed your mind? Um, my first thought was like, holy shit, we need to get this up ASAP on HuffPost's website. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go! go this, this guy, to be clear to people, he was like the sort of chief like architect of the way the bailout actually functioned um, when he was at the Treasury Department. Before that, he was managing director at Goldman Sachs. Managing director is a Wall Street title that means rich person. Right. Um, so this is not somebody who Shaheen or myself or Jason, I think, ever would have thought to be giving this type of and, and just, speech. Just, just to add a little bit more context, he's now part of the Minneapolis Fed. He was recently, he was recently, he recently joined the Minneapolis Fed. So this is kind of, but this is kind of like, a, it was a shock to my system. So what did he say, Shaheen? So Kashkari goes before the Brookings Institution in D.C. and says, too big to fail, is alive and well. Uh, specifically, he said, I believe the biggest banks are still too big to fail and continue to pose a significant ongoing risk to our economy. And then he proceeds to outline three possible ways in which we could end this problem and then he goes on to detail three reasons often cited by 
uh, you know, mega bank proponents, financial lobbyists, um, bankers themselves, their allies in D.C. about why we need big financial institutions in the U.S. And he just pro- proceeded to decimate those arguments. And so, what were his proposals? The proposals were. I mean, it depends on your perspective, right, whether they're achievable or not. But there were, the three were either break up the biggest banks into several smaller institutions, uh, treating them like public utilities, like the electric company or like the water company, where you basically make them uh, – you basically treat them like, you know, where anything they do basically has to be approved by the government, Uh or the third option was just basically tax leverage throughout the financial system, which, in other words, just making it more expensive for financial companies to use borrowed funds, basically making them like actually fund their investments with equity as opposed to borrowing from others. I think as much as you know, any Bernie Sanders supporter would like the government to step and take control of the banks, it's probably not feasible for the government to be approving everything these big banks do. What, is, I mean, what does that even mean? Just like co-sign every transaction it's a more ambitious proposal in some ways i think i mean you, but but i don't know if you, they would have to co-sign every transaction Shaheen, what did you want to say i was just going to say it's not co-signing every transaction but it's pretty darn close i mean public utilities i mean for example like if you i don't know if you guys have comcast or time warner cable in dc um but anytime they want to raise rates they have to get approval from like the local kind of government agency um Whenever they want to, you know, raise prices, for example, like their decisions are micromanaged by all these little, small government agencies throughout the country. When it comes to banks, it would be maybe somewhat similar. Um, and no one ever complained about Comcast or, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, or imposing like new or like tighter requirements, basically like micromanaging these companies because you feel that they are operating um basically for the public's benefit, right? They're no longer private for-profit companies. They are for-profit companies that uh, the U.S. economy relies on, and their health is key to U.S. economic health. And so U.S. government should engage in, like, or should be actively engaged in, like, all their major operations. Now I know why no one ever complains about Comcast or Time Warner Cable ever. Full disclosure, we work for Verizon. So, so look, uh, I mean, but but that's one of the things that's 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 really interesting to me about this is that, you know, there are plenty of people out there who say no, we shouldn't break up the banks; it would be too difficult. I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, it'd be very easy to just tell them get smaller; they would figure out the most profitable way to get smaller. Um, I mean, that, that's what bills have done before. Uh, the 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 more honest argument though is like, look, if too big to fail is a problem and you don't want to break up the banks, then what else do you want to do? And the other proposals out there, you know, essentially taking them over for the public good, making them public institutions, um, that is a that is a much more radical non-market approach yeah, than, than just much. than just breaking them up. Um, but it is it is a reasonable thing to say when you're talking about an institution that is so large that it could do what happened to the country in in 2008 all over again. I also was thinking a lot about the presidential campaign, at least on the Democratic side, um, because when you hear Hillary Clinton talk now. She's she's apparently become concerned that she's not tough enough on on Wall Street because Sanders has a very clear message on Wall Street. We're going to break up the banks. And Clinton's gone out say, saying over and over again, you know, if a bank is too big to fail, I'm going I'm going to break them up. She's been saying that repeatedly in recent sp- speeches, you know, if if we find out they are too big to fail, well, I'm going to break them up. But when you ask her at the campaign, are there any banks that are too big to fail? They totally dodge. They won't say. And I thought it was interesting that yesterday we have the president of the Minneapolis Fed, one of the top economic officials in the country, saying unequivocally, banks are too big to fail and we need to do something about them. And you just heard total crickets from the Clinton from the, the Clinton campaign. But I believe, I mean, Bernie Sanders put out a sta- statement, didn't he, uh, Shaheen? He did. He did. He and said he was delighted. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's really weird to me. So Kashkari is a like, lifelong Republican. He ran this horrible campaign for governor in California. But we now have Neil Kashkari, um, Tom Honig, who is at the FDIC, uh, and Sheila Baer, who used to be at the FDIC, who are all, you know, very serious Republican finance people. Gene, why, why is it that these three people can all say too big to fail is a problem, but it's so much more difficult for a Democratic politician to say the same thing? The whole point 
of the 2010 law known as Dodd-Frank that tried to reform the financial system and make sure that another 2008-like crisis ever happens again. The whole point of that was to forever end too big to fail. The notion that any financial institution in this country is so large or so important that policymakers will have no choice but to bail them out should they ever near collapse. And that's a problem, right? If you think you'll always be bailed out of your mistakes, what are you going to do? Are you going to be conservative going forward, or are you going to take the riskiest fucking bets you can take? There's huge upside, and there's no downside, or very limited downside, let's say. So that was the whole point of the bill. And here we are. That bill passed in 2010. We're now close to six years later, and we still can't say with an honest, straight face that too big to fail is dead. So you kind of have to take stock. Okay, so do we just continue to wait and pray that no financial calamities happen until we get to that point? Or do we look at more radical proposals? My understanding is that the top six banks have actually gotten bigger since the crisis. Is, is there still widespread belief that that's not the case? Folks are, are saying publicly that the biggest banks have shrunk since Dodd-Frank. It's actually, that's not true. Since the law passed, the biggest, the six biggest U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, collectively are 4.7% larger today than they were when the law passed. They now control nine, they now have $9.7 trillion in assets between the six of them. Which is roughly two-thirds of the U.S. economy. Defenders of Dodd-Frank, and we've said nice things about it on this show, they say that the effect has been uh, banks have moderated their behavior somewhat. Uh, banks have uh, capitalized themselves a lot more significantly than they were before the, the crash. Doesn't that make a difference? It does. It makes a big difference. I mean, the best way to protect against bailouts is to make sure the banks have enough money that they can tap into. So if they have huge losses, they'll still survive. They can weather the storm. And before the crisis, the banks were horribly undercapitalized, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, including the fact that regulators were asleep at the switch. And so since Dodd-Frank, they're now much better capitalized. They now are less levered. They rely less on borrowed money. They're more, you know, they have more equity buildup. And those are huge steps. The fact that they have to detail how they would be wound down if they ever neared failure, what regulators call living wills, those are also tremendous steps. The fact that the Fed now stress tests the biggest banks every year, basically saying, okay, if the economy shrinks by this much, the stock market drops by that much, uh, trade drops by this much, China enters a recession, India's fucked. Uh, how these banks will will how how these banks will manage these you know these huge cataclysmic events, and then the Fed basically models what would happen to the bank's balance sheets, and then depending on where the banks end up, they they either bless or deny the banks' request to return capital to shareholders. But the thing is, these these things all all make the the banking system safer. But I think the the, the message from from Neil Kashkari this week was, and yet they are still too big to fail. And if you're sitting around hoping for Dodd Frank to work to fix too big to fail, we've kind of already seen the good that it's going to do. We have the CFPB. There is more, there is less leverage in the system now. But we still have not fixed too big to fail, which means there is still an incentive for excessive risk-taking to go on with the ins these institutions, which can itself create a crisis which those those institutions will not be able to weather. So the issue isn't, like, has Dodd-Frank made the system safer? It has. The, the question is, has Dodd-Frank made it safe enough? And Kashkari's argument is no. If you're hungry and somebody gives you a waffle and you eat the waffle and you say, well, I'm still hungry, it, it's not that the waffle didn't work. The waffle worked. You were <laughs> just really hungry. Well done. Well, we've succeeded in at least one metaphor uh, with using waffles, which I think will benefit our sponsor, waffles.com. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they exist, but I'd love to have them as a sponsor. Um, Shaheen, thanks for joining us, uh, and we look forward to having you on the show again real soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. All right. We will be right back. So that's what happened this week. 
This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We're always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Julia Craven, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, and Shaheen Nasirapur. This podcast was sponsored by Zip Recruiter, the one-click service that will get you the best hires before your competition can. We were also sponsored by Texture, the app that brings the best magazines on the stands right to your smartphone. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.